0: This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation.
1: One download at a time. Here's your host,
0: former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave,
2: and thank you, listeners, for joining us with another 30 minutes of your precious time to discuss the issues in politics facing America today. Today, we will discuss the politics of ransomware with NBC News reporter John Allen, a longtime award-winning congressional reporter and author of two books, one on Hillary Clinton and his latest on Joe Biden, which we will talk about. But first,
0: welcome, John. Jerry, good to be with you, man.
2: You too. Hey, I was thinking over the weekend, I was in Silver Spring. My twins graduated from high school from Montgomery County Schools, which was uh, your school's growing up. Is that right?
0: That's right. Uh, Walter Johnson High School, class of 1993. Oh, you gave it out. The
2: the thing that I remember you saying about Montgomery County Schools that you appreciated so much is they taught you
0: about diversity. (laughs) It's not even being taught so much as uh, being, uh, being, you know, enveloped in it. And uh, particularly, um, I grew up partially in Silver Spring, Maryland, partially in Bethesda, Maryland, particularly in Silver Spring. I mean, it, it, you don't even think about diversity because it's all around you.
2: Yeah, my, my kids, I think they were the only white kids in their class, which was awesome. I mean, that was just so inverted from where way I grew up. So you're right, and just being immersed in it um, just helped so much. So let's get to it. Uh, you did a great story recently on ransomware. So tell our listeners what ransomware is.
0: So uh, ransomware is uh, is basically um, you know computer programs that uh, can be used to um, I mean, do a variety of things. But typically what's been going on... Um, in the United States, and and we think a lot of the attacks are coming from foreign countries, um, particularly those close to Russia and including Russia, um, basically used to lock down the computer systems of a company or an organization or a government agency. Uh, And then the uh, ransomware is is used uh, to communicate demands um, from from the people who've locked down the organization's computer systems. Um, And, you know, I recently wrote a story about uh, the Teamsters having been hacked and, and having one of these ransomware attacks in 2019, which was um, unknown to the public until, until I reported it uh, last week uh, with a colleague of mine at NBC. Um, and really sort of a, a fascinating story where the Teamsters called up the FBI and uh, and said to the FBI, hey, we're we're being extorted. Um, you know, is there anything you can do about that? And the FBI's response, according to, to my sources, was... Uh, basically, that this was happening all over the place. The FBI didn't, you know, didn't really have a remedy for it, and uh, that the Teamsters should just pay it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the the demand for them was two point five million dollars to uh-huh. access, I think, one of their two email servers and uh-huh. um, a bunch of their a bunch of the you know the organization's um, you know own data. And the Teamsters negotiated down with the their ransom uh, group from 2.5 million to 1.1 million and then on the advice of their insurance company decided not to pay it and instead started rebuilding their own systems based on archived data and hard copies and things like that and they they say that teamsters say that most of it has been recovered um you know not 100 percent back to new but um you know it's also been a year and a half can you imagine those negotiations hey they want 2.5 million how about give
2: them a smack in the head and send them on their way
0: yeah, I know I mean <laughs> as, someone, as someone said to me this weekend it takes a lot of chutzpah to try to extort the <laughs>
2: yeah so you were saying a lot of these they, we call them hackers they go in and they, they, they disable the system and, and they're, ask, you know, they're asking for money to redo it they, they have gotten 11 million dollars out of JBS who's the beef and pr- produce beef and pork production biggest ones in the world here in America they paid 11 million dollars to get their system back and then we had the oil pipeline, which was shut down, and they paid several million. And that shut down um, the flow to the East Coast. So um, this is pretty serious stuff. Um, and, you know, it was interesting. I was reading about Leon Panetta, who 2012, he was the Secretary of Defense and basically warned that said, hey, we're going to have a cyber Pearl Harbor someday. And we really uh, got to get our act together. The thing that was interesting to me about your story is that the teams just didn't tell anybody about this. You think
0: if they would have said something that it could have prevented other companies from going through this? I mean, I think it's unlikely that that they would have prevented this from happening. I mean, really, there seems to be no solution. The gov- our government, has not figured out one. Our corporate, you know, our corporations have not figured them out. Unions, other uh, organizations, have not been able to figure out how to stop this from happening, other than to have extremely secure computer systems. Um, and you know, I talked to one uh, one union official, not at the Teamsters, but at another union, who said this is really a wake up call. Um, And, you know, not just what happened with the Teamsters, because they were unaware of that when it happened, but that this has been going on um, so many, so many targets of this that they've actually started investing a lot more in their cybersecurity. And it was something that they used to have as kind of a line item on their budget that they put as little into as possible. And and now they're really, Mm -hmm. um, you know, putting, putting more into it. And, and, and Panetta, I think when
2: the time when he made those comments, someone asked him about the, the nation's cybersecurity, like he, he was saying, hey, they're going to tap into our infrastructures, they're going to they're going to disable us. And I think uh, at the time, the Secretary of Defense coming in behind him said, on a scale of one to 10,
0: we're at about a three. Uh, and that was 2012. Where do you think we are now? I'd hesitate to give it a, an exact number, but I don't I don't think that that three guess was was terribly far, far off. <laughs> we I mean, obviously... Yeah. You you know, all kinds of systems are vulnerable to this kind of attack. And one of the questions that law enforcement uh, officials are asking themselves and, and trying to figure out is, um, you know, are the, the disproportionately small amounts that are being asked for a sign that, um, you know, everyone and his brother's gotten into this and the hackers are, are somewhat amateurs? Or is it a sign that it's not really about the money, but about showing where the flaws in our systems are? Um, you know which would suggest that you know more more of a government-backed initiative you know foreign government the russians or somebody else or maybe somebody you know many somebody else is trying to figure out you know where they can where they can disrupt things and that the the money might be a, a you know somewhat of a ruse um in that it, it you know if you if you can disable the the um you know, uh, the gas distribution, fuel distribution across the East coast, then, you know, asking for a couple million dollars in exchange for, for letting that back, uh, and get, get up and running again, is a very small, small price to pay. Right. I mean, JBS paid 11
2: million and they said, that's not that we make 53 billion, but it sounds like we were sleeping. It sounds like our companies and maybe our country is sleeping on something like this.
0: I think that's, I think that's definitely true. But I also think that we're awake now. Right. But what,
2: the, what is it going to take in, in your eyes and, and having reported on this, what do you think is going to take to get us up to
0: speed? I mean, technological advance, certainly uh, like number one, you know, companies actually treating cybersecurity and, and government agencies and other institutions treating cybersecurity with the seriousness with which, you know, like, you know, every, every car dealership lot has cameras. Um, you know, they have sophisticated alarm systems. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they have to think about their cybersecurity in the same way, which is, you know, you can't let anybody into the perimeter. Um, And that, you know, has proven to be uh, uneven across uh, companies and agencies and institutions. And so I think, you know, I mean, I think technological advances will help, um, but there's always going to be somebody, you know, some criminal element that's a step ahead on the technology, Uh uh half a step behind and, um, you know, where the, the cutting edge is and, and still better off than, um, you know, some of the defenses that are out there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a conundrum. uh uh-huh.
2: Mm-hmm. An expensive one. The, um, we were mentioning about the teamsters not saying anything about this. How long do you think this has been going on? The pipeline was was the, the, when, they, when they shut down the pipeline. That was the one that really got my attention and people's attention because gas prices went up and there was no gas for a week. And the same with the beef. The beef went up 25%. And um, so how long do you think this has been going on?
0: Well, I mean, the Teamsters were hitting uh, over Labor Day weekend in 2019, so at least as long as that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, pro- probably before it, I mean, you know, it is not in the interest of, um, generally speaking, not in the interest of any individual company to let people know when they get hacked for a variety sure of reasons either. and sure. and certainly if they end up paying a ransom. And so... I suspect that there are a lot of organizations that have been hit that have said nothing. And how about going
2: after the hackers? I mean, it doesn't sound like there's enough knowledge or maybe systems in place to go after and catch these people.
0: Well, even if you can find them, if they're overseas, there's you know complications in terms of um, you know being able to operate inside you know foreign borders, and well, you essentially need the cooperation of other countries to do that. Um, And so if, you know, if these are Russian hackers, you would need Vladimir Putin's cooperation. There's no suggestion that he's um, uninterested in interfering with American systems. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, We know that we know that uh, Russian hackers have been engaged in our elections for the last uh, Mm -hmm. two cycles, at least. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even if you were to find them, uh, how do you get them? And can you can you get extradition from other countries i mean right. just, it's a tough tough nut to solve yeah i just saw a, a big investigation and um
2: it was a they, they got like so many people around the world it was really a target and you may know that that it, it was kind of a, a sting and and all over the world just brought these but i'm sure that took just a long time and again we're so far behind in the game that it's going to
0: probably take a while before um this thing you know, anybody gets a handle on it you know and it seems that this is widespread enough that, you know, even if you were to bring down a, a big hacker or a couple of big hackers, you know, the... The template is there for, for anybody who wants to do it. Right. I get, and
2: it was Interpol. Interpol put that together where they got these all these major drug dealers and things. So it's probably going to take them to, to get involved in this at some point. So uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your books. You did HRC um, after the Hillary Clinton campaign and then uh, recently did a book on Joe Biden and his campaign. And what do you think was the difference in those two campaigns? Why did Biden win? Why did Clinton lose?
0: You know, it was really a lot closer this time than a lot of people, a lot of people think. And the, the distance between, you know, Hillary Clinton losing and Joe Biden winning is pretty small when you look at the number of votes in the uh, in the pivotal swing states. Um, you know, Biden, Biden won by a combined 44,000 votes across three states that if they had flipped, Trump would have won. That's Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia. And if you look back in 2016, you know, Hillary Clinton... Lost by about you know seventy seven thousand votes across oh. uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. So I mean, we're oh. not we're not talking about huge swings that would have uh, that would have required to to flip both of those elections. I, I think that Biden did a better job of um, of uh, articulating uh, reason for his candidacy that was about other people. Um, uh-huh. You know, and I think that that was something that made it easy for the Democrats to to you know rally around him, and I think it was something that made it. Uh, easier for him to be, um, you know, less offensive to the Republicans that he was trying to bring over. I mean, you've got a whole set of anti-Trump Republicans that voted, voted for Biden this time around. Um, so I think, you know, I actually don't think there was a huge difference. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there were, in terms of the popular vote, there was a big, you know, a bigger margin between the two candidates. Um, you know, I think Biden won by Seven and a half million or so votes, and and Clinton had won the popular vote by about three and a half million. But when you go into the electoral college in those states, it's so close it's it's hard to it's hard to know exactly what the differences were. But it, you know, in county after county, you saw the Democratic margins in counties that they lost. Uh, the margins were smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Biden was able to do a little better in in some of those rural counties, and he was able to pull over some swing counties back in his direction. So, you know, I, I have always sort of attributed that to a pretty, um, you know, for a guy who's known for being undisciplined on the campaign trail for a pretty disciplined campaign when it came to messaging, um, you know, that Biden was really, you know, running against Trump as a contrast on competence and character and -hmm. compassion. Um, and that, you know, those things were, um, what would lead him to, to make better decisions than Trump. And I, you know, I mean, I also think the pandemic was, um, you know, probably determinative. I think Uh without COVID, um, Uh there's a real good chance that Donald Trump is still president. Yes, that's exactly
2: right, because the economy was humming along really well, and, you know, it was always, uh, you know, the old Clinton line, is the economy, stupid, you know, but um, it was interesting. I was talking to a longtime demo, and about a year out of the campaign, they were talking to Biden and saying, hey, look, we're, you know, the Democrats, the polling shows, we're looking for a young, dynamic, new kind of Kennedy guy, and I thought that Buttigieg had kind of gotten that label, although he was just the mayor of South Bend, and people were saying that. but. Um, Biden said, hey, I came back after seeing the Charlottesville shooting and uh, not Charlottesville, I guess it was Charleston, was it? It was uh,
0: was the Charlottesville uh, uh, shooting,
2: wasn't it? No, it was the riots. You were right. No, it
0: was yeah. the the protests and counter-protests in Charlottesville over that's
2: race. right. And um, so uh, he comes back and and kind of saves the day in a sense. And uh, what did you think of that? I mean, is, it 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 seemed kind of sad that that's what the Democrats needed to to take back the White House.
0: I think that Biden saw that as a moment that spoke to those contrasts that I was talking about before: competence, character, and compassion. You saw Trump come out after charlottesville and um you know there were a lot of people who interpreted what he said as a um you know sort of both sides ism uh where he, you know he said there are good people on both sides of of those protests and he said what he meant was the people that were protesting in favor of confederate statues not necessarily the neo-nazis uh that you know so sometimes a, sometimes a very uh thin line to try to distinguish between them. <laughs> yes um and so you know I, I mean I think for him it was it was more of a touchstone that he thought would you know really catered to the kind of message that he would want against Trump rather than uh-huh. the reason that he was running. I mean he he's run for president 3 times. He thought about running several other times. Uh-huh. Uh, this guy who wanted to be president whether you know before Charlottesville. I mean <laughs> right. not not before Charlottesville existed, but certainly before the Charlottesville protests. And how do you think he's been doing so far? Um, you know, that's a a great question, Jerry. I mean, there, there are things, um, you know, where he's had success, the American rescue plan, you know, getting that, uh, big COVID relief bill with a lot of other, uh, you know, sort of democratic priorities in it, um, including funding for States and cities. He was able to get that done. It was something that he had promised on the campaign trail would get done. And by the way, including checks out to people, um, who had, uh, who had suffered under COVID, um, and, you know, expanded unemployment insurance, so he was able to get all that done uh, early on. Since then, he's had a real tough road to, a tough road to hoe, though, um, in terms of, uh, you know, really running into resistance, not only in the Republican Party, but from some of his Democratic allies in Congress when it comes to putting together a transportation package, when it comes to um, this voting rights legislation that they're trying to get done. Um, you know, he, <laughs> there's often a question of like, you know, what? Why won't the you know why won't the Republicans put up the sixty votes? But in in fact, uh-huh. it's very difficult for the Democrats to get all fifty Senate votes uh-huh. for anything right now. And In the House, the margins are so thin. I think Pelosi can only lose about four votes right now and still uh, pass legislation. So I mean, it, it's what somebody who'd been around Washington for a long time I think would expect uh-huh. um, with a presidency that was fairly narrowly won, a fifty fifty Senate and a House that's about fifty one percent Democratic, which is to say. Um, You know, there have been some moves in the Democratic direction, particularly on the executive branch level. But, uh, you know, the things that he can do by executive order and through the, um, you know, sort of cultural changes within agencies that happen when a presidency shifts hands. But as far as legislatively, um, there's not a lot of room to maneuver. And it's
2: kind of funny and and you know i was up there with you for a long time and uh you know everybody's saying well the democrats saying we got to get rid of the filibuster you know and i can remember the republicans saying the same thing when the democrats were in like we got to get rid of this filibuster you know it's got to be a straight up and down vote uh you had a really good story too and and it kind of shows some of the, the tightrope he has to walk on these addition um these issues you talked about the farmers and the funding for the farmers and you know the the um the priority being set that, you know, we want to fund minority farmers, we want to give them kind of give them priority. And then there's now a big fight kind of pushing back. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Sure. Um, Within the American Rescue Plan, that $1.9 trillion COVID relief measure, there was $5 billion within the Agriculture Department set aside for um, what are called in the law, socially disadvantaged farmers. And that Basically, means farmers who've been who's who are members of classes that have been discriminated against in the past based on race and ethnicity. Largely, you're talking about African American farmers, uh, in some cases Latino farmers and, and Asian Asian American farmers. Um, but basically, the the law um, is very specific about uh, those groups, and and it excludes white farmers from that particular pot of money, not all agriculture department programs. And in fact, this is smaller than many agriculture department programs, but, um, but there's a lawsuit or there are several lawsuits that have been filed on behalf of um, various people who, uh, who feel that they've been excluded from this unfairly and unconstitutionally. And uh-huh. they're arguing that um, there cannot be a race based um provision of law. There are other provisions of law that are similarly worded and in some cases programs that deal with so- the socially disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the small business arena actually include veterans and other groups that include white people so that it's not like a purely racial or ethnic divide. Um, and you know what I wrote about was uh, the possibility that if the, the courts overturn this policy and say that you can't uh, target Uh, money specifically to minorities, that that's, uh, you know, it's a pretty, um, a pretty slippery slope um, in terms of uh, other areas of law. So, for instance, how would the federal government uh, give money to historically black colleges and universities? Mm -hmm. You know, something Donald Trump talked a lot about, uh, increasing funding for HBCUs when he was president. Uh, It would be very difficult to do that if you had, uh, say, you know, a federal court or eventually the Supreme Court say that you can't target money uh, to minorities and and exclude whites even, you know, within a a particular grant program.
2: And we we saw that when colleges started to implement affirmative action, right? There were the suits by the white students who said, hey, I was kept out of the school because I was white. And um, how uh, likely is it that this will be struck down? I mean we have a conservative pretty conservative court system right now.
0: You know I I don't know the answer to that Jerry and the reason is it's hard to predict what federal judges are going to do. <laughs> um, and it, and, it, and also because it's a it's a difficult question you know, one thing that's interesting and I'm sure that the um you know the, the government as it defends itself in court will make this point um you know the the language around socially disadvantaged farmers which again excludes whites uh, has been around in federal law since at least the Reagan administration. And in fact, Trump signed a law that used that language in 2018. The most recent farm bill, um, you know, before this American Rescue Plan uh, had the same language, socially disadvantaged farmers, meaning the exact same mm-hmm. thing. And um, now you've got former Trump aides, Stephen Miller's, is, uh, you know, leading one of these groups filing a lawsuit against it. So um, it may be that one of the arguments uh, against the white farmers lawsuits is that there's some disingenuousness going on we've seen um you know the trump administration really slammed a lot by federal judges over the course of the last few years Uh for making what the courts have said are disingenuous arguments about a variety of uh policy areas um but as far as the law goes i mean you know this is a this has been a difficult area for the law um you know Uh how do you uh how do you combat systemic injustice uh-huh. without creating other injustices and how do you do all of that within the you know within the bounds of the constitution and so you know i know that um the representatives of black farmers organizations that are advocates for black farmers are, are very worried about not just this uh, particular legis or this particular um suit and, and its implications for the particular program but more broadly across the Agriculture Department and more broadly across federal law, what the implications are for, um, you know, any programs that target support to non-whites. And it's it's that very, very contentious situation we're in right
2: now in the country in terms of racial uh justice and uh you know biden's kind of got uh, he's got a kind of tough road to hoe here as you say um because uh this could affect um you know other ch- you know other abilities or other you know, chances or to, uh, to, to do that, to, to, to do some racial um, justice and environmental justice
0: and, and things like that. But if you take it out of the context of just race and ethnicity, I mean, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, you know, has requirements to uh, to, to make uh, facilities uh, accessible by people with disabilities. There is, <laughs> that mm-hmm. excludes people who don't have disabilities. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there, mm-hmm. there are so, sort mm-hmm. of all areas of law that um, could come into question um, if uh, this particular program were returned. And, you know, and by the same token, um, you know, I think the fact that the federal government has long, uh, you know, created priorities um, or, uh, or, you know, sought to combat injustice with advantage, um, you know, it may make it harder for a court to decide that, uh, that you can't do that.
2: And it's um it's interesting because I think uh this this kinda and I'm glad you reported on because I think something like this kind of flies under the radar and has so
0: much potential and so much impact. Absolutely. I mean the the you know, your your mind can run wild with the sure. area of federal law sure. that would change yeah. um, you know, if, if judges decided to uh to overturn this law and yet at the same time, sometimes judges will make a decision and, and cast it very narrowly and try to protect um, you know, other areas of the law from the decision on the particular program that they're talking
2: about. And um, you are a congressional reporter. You've won several awards covering Congress, and we've got the midterms, which I can't believe are only like maybe what 16 months away, 18 months away. And there's a lot of fear that the Democrats are going to
0: lose the House and, and also lose the Senate. What's your thoughts? Well, I mean, historically speaking, uh, the uh, the president's party usually loses seats in the House in the in, you know in the midterm of his first term. Um, it's very rare for that to not happen, um, and because the Democrats hold such a small ma- majority in the House, uh, it would not take very many <laughs> losses of seats to lose the House entirely. Um, you know, if you we're going to have to go race by race, you know, and and we'll know more heading into next year about how those races are shaping up and which, you know, which primary candidates are strong, which general election candidates are strong. But I mean, you know, the, the odds are that the Republicans end up taking the house um, both from a historical perspective and the fact that there's probably a little more low hanging fruit for them um, than there, than there is for the Democrats uh, because of uh, the, this round of redistricting that's happening every 10 years, the census is done as a result of that the congress you, and you know this Jerry just for the listeners who who might not um every 10 years the uh the number of house seats in each state is reapportioned so the 435 seats are reapportioned among the states based on population changes and then each state goes in and ch- and redraws their congressional lines to uh make um you know the number of seats within that state uh have equivalent constituencies meaning if you have 700,000 people in one district, you have 700,000 in mm. the next district, you don't oh. have one district with 700,000 and one with 900,000. Um, and so, you know, when that redistricting is done, the the likelihood is that Republicans are going to pick up some seats just uh, just because of population movements um, in, seats, in states that they control the legislature and the governorship. Um, you know, you'd see that perhaps in Florida and Texas um, and, and a couple of other states. So... Uh, you know, again, the odds are that Democrats lose the House um, doesn't mean that that will happen. Uh, again, we're pretty far out as far as the Senate goes. Um, it's always a little more complicated to to figure that out. <laughs> it seems to me like sure. every, every <laughs> cycle I'm wrong about three or four senators. from <laughs> hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, if, but at 50-50, I mean, there, you know, obviously there's, there's a chance that the Democrat, Democrats lose the Senate. And what does that I mean, does that pretty much neutralize Biden's agenda if, if that happens? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know more more so than it is neutralized now, um, and it is pretty neutralized right now. and it happened to Obama too, right? I mean, we saw that in, in, in it did. and did and and you know Trump eventually gave up on on legislating. Um, sure. <laughs> he also had the problem. I mean the, for the Democrats, the odds that they lose the Senate are higher much higher than the odds that they uh, end up with sixty seats in the Senate, which is what they would need without getting rid of the filibuster um that said you know if they were to have 54 or 55 seats they might be able to get rid of the filibuster with the 54 or 55 democrats that they have right. um yeah. and you know so it, it's possible that democrats could have a stronger hand in the senate uh coming out of the midterms but if they lose the house none of that really matters matters right, right. will come to a halt
2: yeah and it's interesting because I th- another thing i think that people don't understand is that, you know, when Congress goes home for this break in August, that's when they really test the waters. That's where they get a feel for, well, should, you know, am I going to have a tough primary opponent? Am I not going to be effective anymore? Do I need to retire? So back, you know, once the fall comes, you'll start seeing all that kind of shape up. And one of the fascinating things too is just um, the the splits in the factions of the of Congress. So we have the Republicans, the traditional Republicans, we have the Trumpists or the Trumpists. But then we have the Democrats and then we have the, you know, the Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie
0: Sanders wing. How much are they hurting the Democrats, do you think? (laughs) It's a it's a good question. I mean, I think if you ask them, they'd say they're helping the Democrats (laughs) by making them more accountable to what the people want. And of course, the people is a subjective (laughs) idea. Um, But I mean, look, so far they've been unified uh, in favor of uh, Biden's agenda. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that that probably won't last forever. I mean, you know, the more you get down a brass tacks on some of these legislative efforts, um, you know, they, if they start moving a transportation bill and it doesn't have that much money in it or it's, you know, really focused right. on hard infrastructure, um, you know, roads and bridges and doesn't do much in terms of electric vehicles and some of the other climate change stuff they want, I mean, some of them could vote against it, you know, that's... <laughs> This is yeah. always the the problem for a president and his, his majority party in Congress is that, you know, you go a little too, too much to the center and you lose the left. You go right. a little to the left, you lose the center. Right, right. And it used to be just kind of
2: home team against the Wade team. It should be like just two teams, and now it's just it's just all over the place. Well, it makes it fascinating. I mean, it makes it more dramatic, and I think, you know, and it was funny, there, you know, there's a new book out on Pelosi, and one of the things Pelosi said was her greatest uh, teacher for running the house was raising five kids, and uh, she said, you know, I had to know their needs. I had to know their temperaments, and I thought, wow, that's pretty fascinating. She's got 435 kids now. You know, she's got to take care of, you know, so... <laughs> So uh, anyway, it's a lot of, it's a lot of spaghetti. <laughs> it's
0: a lot of spaghetti, and you
2: know, being a father two, what it's like to to take care of two kids. So anyway. yeah, I don't.
0: I can't imagine four hundred thirty-four, <laughs> <or> even five. <laughs> And they're brats. They're brats. Every single one of them. <laughs> the house hey, members, not my friends.
2: Exactly. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, hey, buddy, well. thanks for joining us. It was really a treat to catch up with you. Please give my best to your wife and kids. And we're going to have you back on. And uh, just always a very um, stimulating conversation. Thanks, hey, buddy. Congratulations on getting your twins through school. <laughs> that's right. And I guess I'm going to be the house speaker next, you know. <laughs> I
0: remember I remember when you were an expectant father. That's, that's oh, that's right. Oh my gosh.
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you know as and you'll see, I mean, you, you know, you'll see as your your kids get older it gets so much better because they can talk, they can have opinions and that, you know, it's really just a it's a really cool thing, you know. I mean, all of the wonderful things we've gotten to do as reporters and this is Father's Day coming up. We'll be broadcasting and all the things we've gotten to do as reporters is really um nothing compared to that role i mean i i just have not enjoyed anything more than that role it's just been such a joy to to watch them because you get to relive your christmas again you get to relive these you know you kind of go back to your childhood with that so now what did your father do
0: john uh he was a political reporter really for whom uh united press international no kidding wow and where was he stationed mostly dc really congress covered the white house i mean i i i always tell people i'm like i'm I'm, I'm a tradesman, uh, you know, not not so much a professional because I'm like the bricklayer's son that lays bricks, you know? <laughs> you, 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 yeah, we, we were a word factory, right? We, we yeah, just exactly. were a
2: word factory. You know, I mean, sometimes up. people
0: ask me what I would have done if I didn't do this. And I'm like, well, I, I didn't have to think about it because this is the only thing I knew I could do. Right. <laughs> but how much did he inspire you? How much did he kind of push you into it? You know he didn't push me into it at all in fact i remember i told him i want to go to journalism school and he said uh go get a degree in something else <laughs> he's <laughs> like if you want to be a journalist you can do it but go get a degree in something else That's um funny. but but he, i mean he was an inspiration in terms of you know there was always talk about politics and uh, and government um around my around my dinner table as a kid and um you know i certainly idolized my dad uh you know as much or or more so than most kids, so um, you know I think that there was an insp- you know kind of a tacit inspiration.
2: Yeah. And that's kind of
0: interesting because when my dad, my dad was just, a um, he loved to read books, just devoured
2: books. And he was a, he was a bus mechanic for the Philadelphia transportation system. And one thing he just determined was that I wasn't going to be doing that. He determined that I remember wanting to play football in high school. And he said, you're not playing football. You're going, the only thing you're going to hit is the books. And uh, it was smart. I mean, obviously I would have probably ended up with broken knees or something, but, um, and I remember like, I'm struggling what I want to do. And he said, Hey, why don't you be a writer? You can write pretty good that's the rest of it you know so anyway well thank you again my friend and uh look forward to chatting with you one more time keep up the great work we're really proud of you all right right. take care pal take care jerry now i want to bring in our technical producer the wizard of Oz, mr brad maybe how are you brad i am
1: excellent jerry another wonderful uh interview john very interesting this uh this time around
2: Yes, he's uh, he's very uh, he's a veteran man. He's been there for a long time. He's a giant guy too. He's like six four or something like. that. So when he walks in a room, you know he's there, which helps <laughs> someone. He's got to ask a question, you know. First, yes. he's they can see him, but secondly, if they don't, he punch him in the head. But uh, so today is Father's Day, and you were telling me about something that was interesting that a woman or a friend of yours posts on social media every year. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, a friend of mine who's a therapist uh, usually posts this uh, image every Father's Day and Mother's Day, Um, and it's it's for those of us in the world that are either um, without a father for whatever reason, our relationships with our fathers are strained, or if you're a father and and whose relationship with your child is strained. So I'll just read to you. uh, It's just called "Thinking of You" on Father's Day. Fathers who have lost their children. Ah, uh, those who have lost their fathers, those with strained father relationships, fathers mm-hmm. with strained child relationships, mm-hmm. those who choose not to be fathers, and those yearning to be fathers. So there's a you know father's Father's Day and mother's Day is is always like this celebration of a bond between a child and a parent, and, and not everybody gets to, uh, enjoy the day or some, some, for some cases that day just brings dread to them.
2: Oh, it sure does. Yeah. I mean, it b- b- brings back memories and the thoughts of what should have been and what could have been. And I think increasingly, um, you know, that that's the case. I mean, in poor neighborhoods, you know, so many children are now fathers in poor neighborhoods, which leads to, crime and and all kinds of different things. And, and, uh, you know, I I think I once saw this uh, psychologist and she said, you know, for every mentor you have in your life by eight years old, you have a 20% better chance of being successful. So, you know, that could be very, very tough um, for, for how do you think we improve that at all? Do you think we can improve that?
1: getting men involved in children's lives. You know, I, 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 I wonder, you know, there's, there's been, there's been times in my life where I've I've considered very seriously becoming a big brother, Mm -hmm. but because, you know, I I don't want to say I'm selfish, but just like constraints on my time. Mm -hmm. I've always worked in radio or I've had Mm -hmm. these jobs that are lifestyle gigs where I I didn't think I would have the time to dedicate. I mean, like, big brothers big sisters obviously is is a good organization but yeah i don't know i mean i was the son of an alcoholic father mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and he, and he you know he wasn't around most yeah. of my life so yeah. i you know I, yeah. I like many kids who were born in the 70s. I yeah. was brought up by TV. Jared.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it is amazing too. And I was just reading a book, uh, um, someone that recommended about the impact parents have on children and some of the horrible things um, that we do to each other. And what a big role it is. I, I, I mean, I can remember having uh, my twins and, you know, as soon as I ha- I'm i locked in, I'm locked in for, you know, how many years? I mean, they graduated from high school this, this weekend and, you know, they're starting become them if they're independent adults and i'm glad we got them this far at least but it's uh like you say even with that big brother big sister thing um you know once you make that commitment you
1: got to stick with it man i mean that's you know
2: because you don't want to be that person that comes in their lives and then leaves again like everybody else you know
1: exactly and you don't want to uh, half asset. and yeah. and, I, and that was my biggest fear. I, I felt like I was going to be like, yeah, I'm this kid's big brother. And then two or three months later, like, hey, can I see you next weekend? And I didn't. <laughs> I didn't right. want to be that guy yeah. so i yeah. never did it you know? well
2: that's good that's good i you know i it was interesting because i i grew up in um the per- an area of philadelphia they eventually labeled the white ghetto because the factories left and drug abuse and alcohol and someone that I, I took a guy through and he said how the hell did you ever get out of here and i answered in one word mentors every part of my life i had someone standing behind me making sure that you know i had a, a good neighbor i had my dad i had my brother i had a priest i had a the the butcher shop owner who gave me the job I had a report and I just was so blessed that way you know and um the only thing you could try to do is give it back you know and
1: um yeah no I I fully agree yeah because I I didn't have that when I when I started coming up in, in radio 25 years ago you know I wasn't talking to my dad and I didn't have anyone that 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 knew the profession to, right. to help guide me along. About five or six years ago, I was working at a radio station uh, in New York, and uh, I met a young lady that was interning there. And I asked her, you know, what she wanted to do in radio, and we got to talking. And 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 now I've I've for the last six or seven years helped her uh, along with her career. Like you know, uh, we were just talking today about we're Good. trying to get her into a into a bigger market now. Yes. So um i've I've tried to to help a young person right uh, uh, as much as no one tried to help me yeah you know? and but but
2: i but in doing that, I think you do get to see you get to experience that bond, even if it's not with your son or it's not you, you it's, get it it's really somebody. funny
1: because i I do look at her and feel like when I talk to her, I'm talking to my daughter, sure, sure, and uh, you know, and I want nothing but the best for her, and there are so many times where i've I've like helped talk her off the ledge, sure, so to speak, sure. or yeah. to do something that she would 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 regret maybe down the road. Yeah. yeah. And 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 there are so many instances in my career where if I had someone to call <laughs> They were I'm like, don't me. do, well, listen, don't do that. Give it a day, give it a day, uh, and then yeah, I still, here's what we're going to do. I still do. rely on people
2: for that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so going to be 60. So, well, happy Father's Day to you then. There you go, buddy. Well, well happy
1: Father's Day too. you. You have uh, right. two children that will yes. hopefully not get you a crummy tie. <laughs> that's right. That's right.
2: Um, all right. We're going to be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. want to thank our executive producer. Mr. Mike Gugat, of course, our technical producer, Brad. Maybe our contributing voice talent, Mr. John, the one-take turns of Tampa Bay, the voice of our Tampa Bay. And thank you all for writing in. If you want to send an idea, send a comment, DetailPoliticsJer at gmail. And remember, we meet again. Always read beyond the headlines. Have a great week.
0: With The Front Row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in The Front Row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career, covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon 5-star reviews, Shields' latest work The Front Row is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.